Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome back to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Tina Rivers-Ryan. And I'm Sarah Schaefer. Today's episode is about the Middle East, and we have two special guests with us, Colette LaRue and Gina Constantopoulos. They're going to be talking to us about the conflict in the Middle East and the way that that is impacting the study of art and culture from um, the ancient world in that region. So some of the issues that we're going to be addressing today include iconoclasm or the destruction of objects um, and also looting. So uh, Gina and Colette, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Could both of you just go ahead and introduce yourselves to our listeners? My name is Colette LaRue. I'm a PhD candidate at Columbia University in the city of New York. Uh, I specialize in the art and architecture of the ancient Near East. I'm both an archaeologist and an art historian, so I focus on the material culture um, of Mesopotamia, which is in current day Iraq, southwestern Iran, Syria, the Levant, and even parts of Turkey. Hello, I'm Gina Constantopoulos. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, I actually study philology, so I focus on the study of language in the ancient Near East, particularly Mesopotamia. So I focus on Sumerian, which is our oldest written language, and Akkadian, which is a Semitic language so related to Arabic, Hebrew, and other similar languages. So as opposed to Colette, who focuses on more art history and archaeology, I actually look at the texts that we find on tablets written in a script called cuneiform and interpret what they say, first of all, and the wider textual culture that surrounds them. I know that both of you are fellows at the Metropolitan Museum of Art here in New York this year, and you're both working um, in the Department of the Ancient Near East. And so given that you both are members of this field um, of the study of the ancient Near East, but um, have very different methods, I wonder if you could just explain to us a little bit more about how your work relates to each other's. I think the study of the ancient Near East uh, is a unique field in a number of ways, Um, one of which is that the study is really split between the study of the material culture and the study of the languages, as is represented by both Gina and I, uh, essentially working on the same thing, but looking at very different evidence. I think this is partly, and Gina can help me out here, because the languages of the ancient Near East are so difficult to learn, not only... um, as languages themselves, but because they're written in cuneiform, which is a completely alien script to modern historians. Uh, Yes, I would certainly agree. The decipherment of cuneiform, rather the cuneiform languages, principally Akkadian and Sumerian, is its own interesting historical anecdote in and of itself. Um, Without going into it in too much detail, there's a great little story about how when the individual who had realized he could read cuneiform or had started to read a story on a tablet in the British Museum suddenly leaped up in excitement and began to disrobe himself. This being Victorian London, he probably loosened his cravat slightly. 
we were particularly interested in having Colette and Gina on the show today because there has been a lot of news lately about groups like ISIS or ISIL in the Middle East. And uh, we were wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about these groups' relationships to the archaeological sites and the artifacts that you two deal with in your work today. ISIS or ISIL uh, are in the news a lot uh, in these past few months, really. Um, In addition to the acts of violence committed against people um, in acts of open open, uh, hostility, there have been a lot of acts uh, of aggression and hostility towards objects themselves. There have been a number of stories of looting, uh, both of sites and museums. These, as far as I am currently aware, are largely uh, over-exaggerated. What's not over-exaggerated and what's actually a serious problem, what's going on right now, is something termed iconoclasm. This is violence uh, and particularly destruction of an image or icon, uh, usually for political or religious reasons. ISIS currently is targeting uh, mosques, graveyards, uh, monuments, anything dedicated towards a particular individual. So in addition to that, from the point of view of our field, we know as well that they've been targeting or been or that they've spoken about potentially targeting a number of ancient sites. And I think one of the points Colette raised, and I think is good to touch on, is the difference between destruction and looting. In that, on the one hand, we have what's going on currently now, which is very much on the side of iconoclasm, on the side of destroying objects and sites. What we also see that tends to accompany any politically destabilized region or any region with violence on this scale is looting. So the removal of objects, their appearance on different markets, even just their movement from one place to another. And the motives behind those actions are, in many respects, very different. Right. Um, Looting generally has a financial aspect behind it. Uh, It can be either carried out on a very small local level People who live in the area see a financial opportunity. On the other hand, especially in Iraq, since the military action in 2003, what you have are more large-scale, organized uh, crime syndicates going in and looting on a very, very large scale. They have construction equipment. These are organized uh, economic enterprises. And this is how you have the dissemination of ancient artifacts all across black markets uh, all over the world. On the other hand, iconoclasm really is about destroying the image, um, removing it from history, from memory, and preventing it from entering into a dialogue in the future. What's happening with ISIS is very similar to what happened with the Taliban in Afghanistan with the destruction of Buddhist imagery, or even in the Protestant Reformation with the destruction of church iconography. Colette, could you talk a little bit more about um, what kinds of images are being destroyed and what the motive for destroying these images um, might be? I know you just touched on the fact that um, a lot of time the works that are destroyed are associated with particular individuals. So are they just going after any individuals who are seen to be powerful or, or is there something else that's at play? In general, my understanding is that it's any individual. Uh, As a group, they are against the dedication or the veneration, um, the creation of imagery of particular individuals. So 
mosques that are dedicated to a particular historical individual or religious individual, sometimes they can be both, um, monuments, even gravestones. What we actually have is the destruction of graveyards where all gravestones that bear names of particular individuals are in fact destroyed to remove any trace of them. One tenet of ISIS is that people should be buried in unmarked graves. The point you just made, Colette, is really fascinating because I think most of us think of iconoclasm as being violence that's directed towards images that are outside of one's own belief system or structure. And you're actually talking about um, basically people who are Muslim attacking other Muslim sites. I mean, I think a way to think about this is not as um, Islamic extremism attacking Islamic monuments, but rather a whole series of different ways of interpreting Islam. And I think the best parallel for this really is the Protestant Reformation. What you have are Christians, but it's different aspects, different interpretations of how to be Christian, how to use Christian iconography, and what is appropriate and what isn't. And when you have these violent pushbacks, it's not necessarily that they see the other person as not belonging to their religion, but rather that their way is doing it correctly. So one of the things Colette mentioned that I find really interesting in terms of the longer historical sweep of iconoclasm and text and image destruction is the focus we've seen on destroying names, named graves, in monuments dedicated to particular individuals um, in Islam. And if we look at ancient examples, and I'm actually going to go a bit afield and not talking about Mesopotamia, the area we study, but rather about what we see going on in ancient Egypt, there's a long history, particularly in the New Kingdom, so the pharaohs that most people are probably familiar with, uh, Ramses II, Akhenaten, really the, the headlining pharaohs that we think of in terms of ancient Egyptian history, there's a trend even then to either try and erase someone from history if the pharaoh has done something particularly egregious. Akhenaten in his attempts to rework the religious system, which didn't go over very well once he had passed away, his image and his name was very determinedly erased from history. They destroyed images of him, but they destroyed his name in particular. We see something else go on with uh, Ramses II in particular, other pharaohs as well, where they take the name of the pharaoh who had built a monument and replace it with their own. So we see an attack on, on a particular name, we see an attack on the image, but also the history that that name and image represents. That's very much what we see going on with the destruction of Akhenaten, but it's really, I think, a reinterpretation or almost a forced reinterpretation of a historical precedent, trying to remove it or trying to rework it entirely. Gina, I think... Um what you've just pointed out is really helpful because normally we think of iconoclasm as being an attack on on an image and you might think that the motive behind that was you know i don't like the way you've represented this person but you're pointing out that it's not just the image it's the word so what's really at stake here is not the representation but it's the historical fact it's it's the very identity of this person or their relationship to um you know uh, the building of a monument let's say is being erased this attack on the image, as well as the name, has a very long historical precedent in the ancient Near East and the ancient world in general. Um, it's a different way of thinking about the legacy of a person and how this can affect future generations and how they exist after death. 
in Mesopotamia, there was a sense that immortality was achieved through being known, uh, being spoken about, being remembered, having your name persist, as well as having your image persist and probably your progeny as well. Um, but the importance on the name is is something we see for thousands of years and this attack on it is nothing new this is something that happens again and again in the cycles of mesopotamian history one of the things in the ancient world as a whole this idea that you could remove agency from someone after they were dead not only by removing their name but by removing the ability for them to to speak and articulate for themselves once they were dead there's a fantastic practice called armpitting where the worst thing you can do to your enemy is to sever their corpse in particular ways where they're unable to speak in the netherworld. You remove their hands, you remove very often their tongue, sometimes their eyes. In Mesopotamia, one thing that's actually particularly interesting is that um, atrocities committed on the body of an individual intended to harm them in the afterlife could also be committed on the image of an individual, which would persist and, and remain uh, as part of their afterlife. Um, one particular example I can think of is a head of an Akkadian ruler, probably Naram-Sin, who would have ruled around 2300 BC. And what we see here is, uh, is an image that's been mutilated and deformed after his death. In particular, the eyes have been gouged out, the mouth has been attacked, and the ears have been cut off, essentially rendering this head deaf, mute, and blind. Uh, these are the three main senses for communication. And in harming this image, the ruler was harmed in absentia. So uh, as a bit of an aside, I always think of the bit of the movie and the princess bride, if I may, where you have the two characters facing off at the end and then goes to the death and the other goes no to the pain and describes how he's going to mutilate this person and remove his eyes his tongue if i'm remembering correctly but leave his ears so he can hear everything that's being directed at him um not entirely a perfect analogy but there is that sense of removing someone's own senses and ability to articulate for themselves and having this permanent damage that lasts almost beyond death or in our case very quite literally as they thought of it beyond death I suppose carrying the metaphor of the Princess Bride forward, uh, one might ask the question why the head wasn't melted down or destroyed entirely if it was to keep the spirit and keep the memory alive uh, in a very, um, in a constant state of suffering almost as an example uh, of what could happen to a ruler. You've described how the, the eyes and um, the ears and other sensory organs would be scratched out, but um, isn't it the case that eyes have a particular significance in Mesopotamian culture? Yes, it is. Uh, in Mesopotamian culture, one of the most important organs, or perhaps the most important organ, were the eyes for communication. It was seen as um, the ability to communicate with the divine was almost to look upon it. If you look at religious imagery, uh, in particular, um, votive statues, they all have very open, wide, exaggerated eyes as if to widen this conduit between themselves and the divine. Taking out something's eyes would be to essentially blind them to the gods and, and make them unable to communicate with, gain favor with, or fulfill any of their, uh, their duties to the gods themselves. If you'd like examples of this, uh, several notable ones, there's a group of votive statues. These would have been small statues representing individuals that would have been placed in the inner sanctum of a temple from uh, Tel Asmar or Kafaje. Uh, it's in the Diala River Valley in, uh, in northeastern Iraq. 
they were all excavated from the Abu Temple. And you can see these large staring eyes are really the focal points of the statues. They use shell and lapis inlay to really bring them to life. Um, alternately, from much earlier, uh, in the end of the fourth millennium, we have a group of so-called eye idols from Tel Brak in northern Mesopotamia, where the whole image of the of the the person has really been rendered into an abstract body and huge staring eyes. One of the things, unfortunately, that we don't get the full effect of this when we're looking at a lot of what still survives today, particularly in later statues of particular rulers, particular kings. Um, so the the inlay of these eyes very often doesn't survive. This is, in, in fact, particularly interesting because so much emphasis was placed on the eyes. The inlays were often made of precious materials, semi-precious stones. So these are the first things to be looted, whether it's iconoclasm or not. In terms of the, the textual realm, one of the things I've always found uh particularly salient to how important eyes are in art is we see this as well in in Akkadian Sumerian texts I'm thinking of particularly where if a god is showing favor to an individual the phrase you'll tend to see is that x deity looked favorably upon him is how we phrase it you two both work at the Met and we're living in an era where we're used to having institutions that display these kind of objects. I'm just curious if you can talk about whether or not there were people who similarly collected and displayed these votive statues, you know, stelae that may have been removed from different cities in the ancient world. This particular phenomenon is actually very ancient. Uh, the process of collecting and of seeing an object as still living, still participating, and still sort of having its own story written over time is a very prominent one in the ancient Near East. One of the most famous examples I can think of uh, is the city of Susa, when it was excavated in the French, by the French in the late 19th century. I believe it was 1898 when a lot of these things were discovered. Uh, you have very famous works like the Stele of Hammurabi, uh, which is today in the Louvre. You have the Stele of Naram Sin. These things were not created or intended to be displayed in Susa. It actually goes back to the 11th century BC, where an Elamite king called Shotrak Nahonte went through Mesopotamia on a military campaign and took the most precious works of art that he could find and carted them all back to Susa. He created his own, say, museum gallery with the caveat that he definitely put his stamp on most of them. Many of the images were recarved, uh, inscriptions were erased, and new inscriptions were added that glorified this particular king. This is interesting for a number of reasons. First, we have the valuing of antiquity in antiquity, because at the time of these campaigns, the objects he took were anywhere from 700 to 1500 years old and had been displayed throughout that time. He wasn't digging these up. He was finding them in town squares, in temple centers, in situations where they would have been part of the current cultural uh, experience. We touched on earlier the idea that one of the things we're used to in terms of iconoclasm in the modern political sphere is this idea of targeting another religion's objects. That's not something the ancient world would have participated in or really understood by taking statues of gods from one area to back to your city. You were essentially taking with you the favor of that god in that city and then removing it back to your own. It's not really until we see the rise of monotheism that we have this 
reinterpretation of other gods as demons, which happens a lot in the early Christian sphere, but instead this idea that you can assimilate other deities into your own. One of the things we see with the Hittite Empire, for example, so in Anatolia, what is now modern-day Turkey, in the mid to late second millennium. So one of the things we see is that their pantheon is sometimes called the thousand gods of Hatti, the idea that they simply assimilated other deities into their pantheon in the sense of, oh, we've conquered you, your gods are our gods now. To go off of what Gina was saying, um, these statues of gods were seen as animate in the ancient world, as physical manifestations on the world of the worldly plane of these deities. So to be able to move a deity required the deity's agreement. If you were carting a statue of a deity from one city to another, this essentially meant that the god agreed to go with you and was bestowing their favor onto you. So it was a symbol of divine favor and divine authority and played a part in legitimizing a new kingship or a new reign. Uh, it also very much shows how completely destroyed or devastated the town or city where that statue had been now was. We have a whole genre, so to speak, of texts in the cuneiform tradition called city laments. And one of the things we see in fairly across the board with these texts is that once a city has been destroyed or once a city is truly devastated, you have this very common idea that the gods have left this city, the gods have abandoned the city. And once that happens, the city is seen as almost beyond the point of no return. In this case, we have the idea that an actual army, an actual militaristic force, has done this and truly claimed dominion over the city by removing their gods. So to continue the modern story of the Stele of Hammurabi, one of the most iconic artworks uh, and legal documents of the ancient world, uh, its ancient looting and its ancient resettling in Susa, which is in southwestern Iran, as opposed to Sippar in Iraq, where it would have originally been set up, is continued in the modern day with the advent of the French excavations at Susa. And of course, now it is in Paris. Um, it is one of many, many objects that were taken by European powers, mainly in the 19th century, as the rise of the museum as an institution led to an almost colonial warfare between the different powers of Europe to see who could collect the most amazing, the most impressive, the largest collections of these ancient artworks for essentially modern prestige. Obviously, collecting in the 19th century is very different from modern day with the introduction of a lot of antiquities laws in the 20th century. So at this point, I think it might be helpful to give a brief recap of what we mean when we say the difference between collecting in the 19th century or even the earliest 20th century as opposed to today. When we see a lot of these museums, so if you think of really almost what I might call encyclopedic museums, museums that have collections from a lot of different places, um, very expansive and extensive collections. You're seeing collections that are being built in this critical period. And one of the big differences is that up until 1973, where UNESCO introduced conventions, all archaeological digs operated under something called partage. So in this system, the institution or very often the university conducting the dig would split the finds with the country wherein the dig took place, very often than the antiquities agency. This leads to other interesting 
colonial entanglements where, for example, in Egypt, for a very long time, the antiquities agency was run by the French. So you have a split, the percentages of what stayed and what went could vary, the idea of who got to choose first could vary, but there was this idea that the institution conducting the dig would get to take some objects back with them, and then those objects would enter the art market in a very different way than what we see after 1973. And it's really not possible to create a museum with the scale, both breadth and depth, that we're seeing in, in the Met, in the Louvre, in, in the Pergamon, in the British Museum, in the modern day. It's simply a different landscape of, of museum collecting. Could you just clarify for us what the UNESCO conventions of 1973 actually stipulated? Basically, they stopped the practice of partage. So they, they simply said that any digs, all objects stayed within the host country. Um, and even in, in the earlier ages of archaeology, there are some interesting loopholes around the practice of partage. Perhaps the most famous one, or the one most people might be familiar with, is actually the excavation of King Tut's tomb, where in Egypt almost all tombs were looted in antiquity, but there was an interesting almost loophole where if ever an intact tomb was to be found, all of it would stay in Egypt, which is why the overwhelming majority of the objects from King Tut's tomb are right now in the Cairo Museum. They stayed there because it was an intact tomb. There are some interesting historical anecdotes about how the excavating team felt about this when they realized they weren't going to take things back with them. You guys have presented the importance of these conventions in changing how objects from the ancient Near East are excavated and collected. Um, could you guys talk a little bit more about how either the political turmoil or um, the destruction or looting of objects um, directly affects the production of knowledge that we have about the ancient Near East? So what first comes to mind is actually when I was on an archaeological dig in Cyprus at the site of Prasio Mazarotsos. And as you open the new season, basically the first thing you do is unfill the trench and see what's been looted from the previous season <laughs> and see what's still there. Um, obviously, one attempts to keep quiet if you find anything of significance, but locals know when the archaeological season is and when it ends and when people are no longer there. So archaeological seasons uh, tend to function uh, uh, symbiotically with the academic school year. They typically last several months during the summer, which when you think about excavating in Egypt in the Near East may not be the most logical time to go out into the deserts. However, it's the usual time. Uh, so while you're baking in the sun, you can unearth lots of artifacts. I know as well, uh, not, not from an example, I haven't been on, on digs myself, but obviously as, as a philologist, I've interacted a lot with archaeologists, and I know that some of the Egyptologists in Michigan doing a dig, I believe at Abydos, had to be um, pulled from that dig mid-season when the Arab Spring occurred. Mm -hmm. So we do have digs get stopped, get halted, um, even while they're going on. Um, other digs, people don't return. There, there are digs that in, in the north of Iraq are not going on this year because of the current political situation. Syria, of course, is another area where current archaeology is very difficult, if not, as I'm given to understand it, next to impossible. So I was in Egypt in 2010, uh, right before 
the rise of a lot of instability. So I was very lucky in that I got to go in when things were somewhat stable. Uh, we did have one incident where uh, a threat was made against our particular group and we were sort of barricaded in a military compound for a while. But it really felt generally really stable. And I was able to particularly travel from Karnak through Cairo all, all the way through the, um, the Fayum up into the Delta with relatively no incidents. However, I had a trip planned to Syria the following year, which... I suppose, fortunately, and to the great relief of my mother, I canceled before I went. Colette, could you explain to us why somebody might want to make a threat against your your dig? It wasn't actually an archaeological dig. This was a tour of sites uh, for a group from the center of the ancient Mediterranean. It's a... Um, an academic institution affiliated with Columbia University. It was for specialists in the area of the ancient Mediterranean to actually look at sites firsthand and to uh, do research projects with primary material. So we were largely visiting a whole host of sites uh, from the Steppe Pyramid of Dojer um, to the Great Pyramids of Giza, all the way up to Islamic monuments uh, and modern day mosques. So we were a group largely composed of Americans. We had some difficulty getting travel visas. In order to travel to different places in Egypt at that time, you would have to have clearance from the government. And even when you applied for it months in advance and were granted it, sometimes that particular day they said no. And we were actually assigned armed guards by the government to protect us no matter where we went. Uh, there were really guns everywhere. And in one particular uh, tour of the Fayum and the, the south of the Delta, we'd had a problem getting in where they kept saying, not today, not today. And when they finally let us go, the Islamic Brotherhood made a threat against our group. I mean, the attacking of tourist sites is not entirely unknown or unheard of. Um, the perhaps most tragic and well-known example of this is the 1997 shooting at the site of Dar al-Bahri, the um, mortuary temple of the pharaoh Hatshepsut, who uh, was one of the only female pharaohs in history of incredible renown all around, pretty much a fantastic historical figure. Uh, Dar al-Bahri is a, an amazing site. So in 97, there was a shooting there that resulted in 62 deaths. Um, and I mean, obviously it was all over the news when this happened. I mean, these, these attacks get attention because these are high profile sites. And more importantly, at least for the, the polity of Egypt, is that tourism is one of their main sources of international revenue. When an incident like that happens, tourism plummets, uh, income plummets. And you can imagine for sort of struggling economies, especially where most of these archaeological sites are not within current day cities, they're really more outside near small villages. The income is very important. So when I was there in 2010, they took the safety of foreigners and especially Americans very seriously. So I, not on an archaeological dig, but to visit friends who were at that point studying in Cairo, um, was able to visit Egypt in early April of 2013. So this was after the Arab Spring um, things got fairly unstable then about two months after I visited and even then it was startling to see how much of a decline in tourism there was. You could walk in Cairo, you could see these hotels at night that were from the lights on perhaps at 20% capacity 
we went down to Luxor to see a lot of the sites, Luxor being the site of ancient Thebes, so a really fantastic site, um, the Karnak Temple, the Luxor Temple, both there. And there, I mean, it really was, I'm told, compared to what it was like during the height of tourism, like night and day. When you're looking at 10% of the normal tourism in a city that more or less relies on this as its primary source of income, it's an enormous impact on every aspect of that city's economy. So in addition to being able to access these sites physically uh, as archaeologists, art historians, or philologists, the instability in the region really for the last 10 years, if not 20, if you're going into the 1991 um, military action in Iraq has really shaped a whole generation of scholars and how we have to interact with not only museums and the previously excavated material, but all of the looted material that's coming onto the market and a lot of ethical questions that need to be asked and answered by scholars individually. So as an archaeologist and an art historian, um, generally these disciplines have positioned themselves against looting and against the antiquities market very strongly, particularly because when an object is looted, even if it can be studied later on, so much of its context, um, its entire archaeological context, but some of its historical context is lost. There's an old saying that when you have uh, an artifact out of context, 90% of the information it can tell you is lost. So there's been a push not to, not to publish uh, the looted material that's coming up in private collections, that's coming up on the antiquities market, and not to sort of legitimize these objects as actual antiquities that are of scholarly value. Um, um, archaeologists have come up with issues when it comes to uh, what to do with actual excavated material. So this is the other half of the coin. Because you don't want to be seen as sort of funding, uh, wetting the appetite of the antiquities market, um, I know that the Antiquities Board in Cyprus has a policy where once sherds are actually excavated, these are, are fragments of pottery, sherds, um, they are studied, they're cataloged, and then they're actually destroyed because there's not enough museum space to hold them and releasing them would be seen as almost uh, legitimizing and fueling the antiquities market. This has had a lot of pushback because the idea of destroying an antiquity is generally not what archaeologists want to be doing. Uh, so that is one way to sort of come down on that side of the ethical question. And I know for our field in particular, uh, archaeologists and philologists have generally had some battles over how to face this problem. So from the perhaps philological perspective, or rather the perspective of philology, we're looking at the importance of the text, um, and I should perhaps preface that by saying that for philologists as well, there's an enormous amount of information that is lost if you're only looking at an object without any of its archaeological context. Um, very often then we don't know what site it's from, we don't know what period it's from. Some of this we can try and infer from you know, the orthographic information, the shape of the cuneiform signs, what tablets it might be similar to, but there's n there's no way to be 100% certain if we don't have the excavation report. But what we do have is the text on the object itself. So for philologists, I think the question kind of becomes, well, we have this object, we have the text, do we 
work with the text we have, not knowing 100% where this might have come from. This is particularly when we have these objects in private collections, even private collections that might have been legally acquired. Are they then something that we, we translate and publish, getting a lot of information, really windows into the ancient world off of these texts, but knowing that you're publishing objects in in private collections and not only, I say, legitimating, but very much increasing, in some sense, the value of these objects now that they're translated. You know, a cuneiform inscription as opposed to this is a cuneiform inscription from the King Sennacherib. Um, one of those has an entirely different value than the other. To go off of what Gina is saying, the economic implications of studying this material as sort of a legitimate scholar with affiliations either to a university or museum can't be understated. When you as a scholar publish these 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 objects, you not only increase their value uh, significantly, but you also increase incentive to have <laughs> objects of your own that look like these that could be evaluated. Um, and increases the, the desire of collectors to have their objects authenticated to increase their value for resale. So you're really having a significant impact in the buying, the selling, and the valuating of these objects. So I think one of the, I guess, sort of the, the issues that art historians as well as philologists struggle with is, for the large part, we have objects that preserve very well in ancient Mesopotamia. You know, they wrote tablets on clay. There's a running joke that we're the only field that really is is glad when a library burns down in antiquity because now all of our tablets are fired and they're going to preserve fantastically for the next <laughs> 4,000 years. Yeah. We really love disasters. <laughs> it's great. Destruction is fantastic when it's ancient. What we have then is if you have these objects that are well-preserved, even if they're removed without context, you know, I, I think there's this sort of almost desire to like, well, there is information on this. There's so much in the ground, but there's so much in museums that's untranslated. And to expand on the collections in museums that haven't been translated, I think the general public has actually no idea how many objects and how many texts from Mesopotamia actually are preserved. Uh, I've heard estimates of 100, 200, 300. In reality, it's much, much higher. What we're looking at is actually the majority of written human history. Cuneiform as a written script that uh, was used to write many languages existed for over 3,000 years. This is, in fact, the majority of written human history. Gina, do you have an estimate for how many cuneiform tablets we have, both published and unpublished, in museum collections? Uh, off the top of my head, no. Just from what I know, for example, the British Museum is perhaps our largest collection of cuneiform tablets um, since the, the looting of the Baghdad Museum and that collection still pulling itself together, I think it might very well be. It's certainly the largest outside of of Iraq. And I know that the British Museum has over 100,000 tablets, and that's one museum. In over one collection. 100,000. I want to say that the number might be around 130,000, but I can't... I'm certain about the over 100,000. In, in terms of objects in collections, we're, we're looking at in the upper hundreds of thousands, if not closer to a million, just tablets, so, many of which are untranslated. Um, and it is difficult to convey how much is still in the ground. 
there is so much still in the ground. Mm -hmm. We don't have, we haven't found entire cities that we know of that were capitals in the ancient world, in ancient Mesopotamia, and we haven't found them yet. I would say that the amount of cuneiform texts, which I would put in the upper hundred thousands, just as Gina, or the low millions, um, is really just scratching the surface of what's out there. If you consider the durability of clay, a lot of ways we find these documents is in trash fill. When you're done with a, a document in the modern United States, you might recycle it. Well, that completely destroys the document. What happens in Mesopotamia is they're put in trash fills and they're actually preserved. And if we're lucky enough that anyone comes along and sacks the city and burns it down, then they're perfectly preserved. They're, they're sort of like bricks at that point. They really are fired clay. So one of the things we see in the textual record um, that's, you know, tantalizing and incredibly frustrating is that texts will make references to other texts. You know, incantations will reference, we'll hear you recite this other incantation and they'll cite the first line. And it'll be an incantation text that we don't have, that we haven't found yet. So Mesopotamia has an incredible understanding of the length of its own history. We have a Neo-Assyrian king called Ashurbanipal, so 6th century BC, who actually compiles a library. And some of these texts are obviously copied, but there are texts in this library that have history stretching back to the late third millennium, you know, that they're aware of that history on some level. To put this in perspective, this is sort of like uh, students at a university reading uh, essays by Plato, right? This, this overwhelming sense of history and time passage between when this is written and when you are reading it. So the ancients really had this sense of time and they had histories king lists and were able to track time in a very sophisticated way. Well, hearing from you guys about the um, importance of these texts uh, in, in terms of understanding not only the history of the ancient Near East, but also recorded human history, um, and hearing about how many of these texts have yet to be discovered has added a whole nother dimension to, um, I know, my own understanding of the crisis in the Middle East. So thank you both so much for sharing your perspective with us today. As always, we encourage you to check out our website, arthistory.today. There you can find images that we've discussed in the episode. Uh, you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash arthistorytoday and on Twitter at arthisttoday. That's A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y. Today.